Welcome to the Catholic Coffee Podcast. This podcast is in the hope that my Catholic journey will inspire yours. So today we're going to be talking about the new Catholic Church established in 2020. We're going to look at the fast-paced dynamics of the Catholic Church. The fast-paced dynamics of the Catholic Church. We're also going to look for, uh, see how the Church has always been criticized for being behind the times. We're going to check out the partial council exec meeting uh, that happened when this whole lockdown happened and how we spoke about the filming of Masses. And we will look at how Mass has returned home. But before we get going, please consider supporting us on DonorBox or PayPal. The links are in the description below. Or support us by buying our merchandise. The link is also in the description. We need your financial support to keep this podcast going, but the best way you can help us is by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you for the support. Got your coffee? Let's jump right in. So the fast-paced dynamics of the Catholic Church. The church has always, since the beginning of time, I suppose, uh, or beginning of my time in the church, which is not that long really, has always been criticized for being behind the times. And, you know, I used to criticize the church in that way as well until I figured out how things worked. Not that I know much about how it really does work, but there's a bit of insight as to how decisions are made within the church. And we know it's a bit of a, a hierarchy and uh, that takes precedence over any decision that needs to be made. And it's almost a top-down approach, you know, with the, the priests on the ground working for the good of that particular parish community, then there's the bishop who looks after the diocese, then the uh, whoever's above that, you know, there's a whole lot of steps all the way up to Rome and then back up to the Pope. So it's quite a, a long distant hierarchy that needs to be followed through. And things take so long to change within the church. And this is quite evident when we look at at the way things have happened over the years, uh, over the years of the church. So we're just going to look at this article that discusses uh, how decisions are made in, uh, in, in the church and how they've been made over the years. So at the Council of Jerusalem in the first century, when a decision was necessary regarding the, the requirements uh, for administration of Gentiles into the church, the Acts of the Apostles reports that the whole assembly of believers was summoned amid much debate. The leaders presented their position and agreement was reached with the consent of the whole church. The whole church was brought into this discussion. The early 2nd century document, the Dadesh, was called on for was called on for the full community to elect for yourselves bishops and deacons. This direct selection of leaders would become a staple of the church practice for many centuries. In the 3rd century, the Cyprian bishop of Carthage followed the practice of consulting priests and deacons on all decisions and involving the whole community in selecting new priests and deacons. He said the procedure was a matter of divine authority and an essential of the tradition from the beginning. In the 4th century, following the Council of Nicaea, a great dispute arose with the majority of bishops holding that Jesus was not God and the majority of laity maintaining he was divine. The dispute was settled after about 60 years, with the laity position becoming the accepted doctrine. John Henry Newman, in the 19th century, used the phrase consensus of the faithful and sense of the faithful, insisting that the post-Nicene experience indicates the Holy Spirit dwells in the full body of the church, not just in the leaders. And that I think we know for sure. You know, the church is not just the priests, not just the uh, deacons or the bishops or any of those guys but the body of people, the people who go to each parish, the people are the church. By the 5th century, bishops were making decisions more unilaterally, like monarchs, 
Still, the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon, the older participative system, it declared that if any bishop should presume to ordain a priest who had not been chosen by a community, the ordination would be both illegal and invalid. Things are slightly different today, hey? So what does this prove? Only that the early church valued the sense of its full membership. As centuries passed, decision-making became more centralized in the hierarchy, but the laity still participated in many areas. A respected historian in the Middle Ages, Brian Tenery, observed, Christian texts are filled with a sense of community meetings, community sharing, community participation in decisions. This reflects, he said, a strong belief that the consensus of the Christian people indicates the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Laity attended many ecumenical councils and even participated in some. In the 20th century, the Second Vatican Council said a lot about the laity, that they too share in the priestly, prophetic and royal office of Christ and therefore have their own role to play in the mission of the whole people of God. That laypersons, by reason of knowledge, competence or outstanding ability, are permitted to and sometimes even obliged to express opinions on things which concern the good of the church. And I suppose this is why we today have the various synods that are happening um, you know, to help make decisions with where the church is going and what the church needs to do and what the church needs to get right to build the community of Christ. Today the church offers countless opportunities for laity to serve, though it is not in the area of decision-making. Today decision-making is becoming even more centralized than at any other time in history, according to the former American magazine editor Tom Rees. Conservatives may say that this is a good thing. Religion ought to be a top-down, smooth-working enterprise. To some extent, that could be right, because you know, if you look at how insane some of the bishops have gone and how they've lost the faith in leading people astray, maybe a top-down approach is not a bad thing, but I think a consultative, bottom-up approach should also be used there as well. But that's you know, my opinion. So they say here that a smooth-working enterprise, and besides, mass participation can be quite chaotic if there's too many laity, too many lay people, or too much involvement from the laity. Liberals can acknowledge some truth in that observation and still point to the danger of passivity in the practice of the faith and the loss of something that seemed essential to Christians of earlier times. That something is basic, the sense of the faithful that I would hope right and left Catholics could agree on before sitting down for a genuine dialogue on the legitimacy of the illegitimacy of dissent. I think what's important here is we need to find a way for the left and the right, the conservatives and the liberals, to talk together and find a way to actually find the best approach to where the church needs to go, especially in the difficult and troubled times we're in now, uh, especially with the lockdown and the, the lack of ability to approach mass or be part of mass or be in it. I think that's absolutely vital. So how do we approach this? Who knows? But one thing I can tell you is that when things are absolutely urgent, things can move very fast within the church. So in South Africa, where I am based in Johannesburg, we got our lockdown notice, I think it was two weeks before Easter, or, or maybe a week and a half before Easter, I can't remember exactly. What happened then, the next day, before the doors closed, or before the gates were locked, uh, we had a, an executive pastoral council meeting. So I'm on, a, on the pastoral council at the moment, I'm the vice chair, and uh, we were called into an executive meeting urgently that night. So we did it literally at the same time. And we thought, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that our community um, remains in touch with, with the parish and the parish remains in touch with the community? And obviously the thing to do was to film the masses and, and put them onto YouTube and Facebook and WhatsApp and uh, spread messages and, and stay in touch with the community like that. And we did it very quickly 
and very successfully. I think it worked, worked out very well. We've got incredible feedback from our community, and we're really grateful for that. Um, I was the guy sucking into doing a lot of the work, but I actually really enjoy it, and it's really good for my faith as well that I can participate and give back to the community. So we moved very fast, and not only our parish, but I know many, many parishes around our diocese, and obviously around the world, many parishes have been quickly jumped on board, set up a YouTube channel, got Facebook working. Although we've had a Facebook page forever, we've never really used it that well, but now we do. Now it's because it has become the central point to communicate with our uh, our parish. And uh, same with WhatsApp. We, we're filling up WhatsApp groups and we have to start another group because of the group limit. But we're getting there and it's been really good for the community and a bit of an eye-opener for our priests as well. And I think he has the downside or, or the, the, the tricky side. A lot of the parish priests are not that tech-savvy. Some are amazing, some are on top of it. So, But a lot aren't. And you know, it could be an age thing, it could be a generational thing. It doesn't really matter. But that's where they need the support of the community. That's where we step in and say, hey, Father, don't worry about this. I got it. We can take it and, and get out there. So when I say I'm doing a lot of the work, I'm doing a lot of the video work for our parish. But we've got a huge team behind us. When I say huge, maybe six, maybe eight, maybe ten people at the most, behind us helping out, getting the messages out there on Facebook, on YouTube, etc., and uh, and on WhatsApp as well. So, you know, big up and thank you to those guys. But what's important is that the community is getting built. I went in with the mindset of like, we could face losing our community if we don't do this right and if we don't be in touch with the community. So uh, we urgently jumped on board and made sure we made this happen and it has worked out well. Yeah, so we had this meeting. Uh, many churches are streaming and doing very well at it. And in fact, I hopped on a Zoom meeting a, a few weeks ago with the Alpha Renovate team, so the Catholic Alpha Renovate team. And it was amazing. There were parishes from all over uh, talking about what they were doing and how they were going to do it and uh, from around our country and around the world. And it was incredible. Like everybody's on the same page and all together. But it's a sign of the times, you know. The way the world has moved is obviously down the digital realm with Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, and has made it work well. And everybody flicked that switch, digitized the church very quickly, jumped on board and made it work. And this brings on to the next topic of how Mass has returned to home. And it's actually very interesting. You know, I sit there every Sunday morning with my wife. We have Mass together as a family. And it's actually amazing. I think we don't have a choice in it at this point in time because we can't go to church. So we're missing out on the physicality of the sacraments and the community. But it doesn't actually matter. And I say that very liberally. I don't mean that it doesn't matter we're not getting the sacraments. I'm saying it doesn't matter that we are having Mass at home. And I think at least we're having Mass. You know, that, that the parishes are going out their way to make sure that Mass can be delivered to the communities is amazing. And I think very brave for many of the priests, especially because this is, this is like new territory to them. The other side, though, I think we need to keep our priests in, in, in our prayers because they're sitting there. Some of the parish priests are sitting there alone in this big parish with nobody coming around. When they're used to having the secretaries come in and do the work in the office during the week and parishioners and guys coming in at night doing the various activities that the parish might have on offer, but they are absolutely alone. For us here, it's probably been about six, seven weeks now that we've been completely isolated and that they've been alone, and it's not a good thing, you know. And people still have the need. They have the need for prayers for the sick. They have the need for confession and all those sorts of things. But these priests are alone. So keep them in your prayers. I think it's absolutely important to make sure that our priests are looked after very well. Anyway, so the Mass has come home. And this is, this is very interesting because if we look at how Mass originally started in the home, uh, in, in the home, I say inverted commas, because it's quite interesting as to how the home was structured. I've got this article on how, where the Mass started. You know, mass, ancient Mass in the house. 
And uh, it was a very big home, apparently. What I'll take you through now, which is quite fascinating, is how it all began. So this article is quite interesting. And it talks about how the ancient mass in the house churches and the house churches was not as formal as many think. As you may know, the Catholic faith was illegal in the Roman Empire prior to 313 AD. And the Emperor Constantine issued the issued the Edict of Milan permitting the Christian faith to flourish publicly. Prior to that time the church buildings as we know them today were rare. Mass was usually celebrated in houses. Now be careful here. These houses were usually rather sizable, with a central courtyard or large room that permitted something a little more formal than mass around the dining room table. I remember being taught incorrectly these masses were informal, emphasized a relaxed communal quality, and were celebrated facing the people. Well, it turns out that isn't really true. People didn't sit around a table or sit in a circle, not at all. They sat or stood formally and everyone faced in one direction, which was east. In the drawing, you can see a layout of the ancient house church, actually more often called Domus Deo, or the house of God, drawn based on an excavated 3rd century house church located in what is now today's Syria. The assembly room is to the left, and a priest or a bishop depicted conducting a liturgy facing east at the altar against the east wall. A baptistry is on the right and the deacon is depicted guarding the entrance door. The lonely looking deacon is in the back of the assembly hall, is there to preserve good order, as you will read below. What is remarkable about these early liturgies is how formal they were despite the fact they were conducted under less than ideal circumstances. So although we have this beautiful picture of guys all you know, sitting around having a nice home mass, like the home masses we might experience today, it seems to have been a little bit more formal. So here are some guidelines that were set out. And so these guidelines were rather elaborate uh, about the celebration of early Catholic mass in these house liturgies. So these are the guidelines. Now in your gatherings in the Holy Church, convene yourselves modestly in a place of the brethren as you will in a manner pleasing and ordered with care. Let the place of the priest be separate in part of the house that faces east. In the midst of them is placed the bishop's chair, and with him let priests be seated. Likewise, and in another section, let the laymen be seated facing east. And I suppose that's where back in the day uh, the, the people would face the back of the, uh, the, of the priest when he was at the altar because everyone was facing east. But that's my guess again. Uh, might be right on that, might be wrong. For thus it is proper that the priest sit with the bishop in a part of the house to the east and after them the laymen and the laywoman. And when you stand to pray, the ecclesial leaders rise first and after them the laymen and again then the woman. There was a bit of separation, hey? But I suppose it may have come from the, the Jewish custom uh, with the separation of the men and the women. Now, you ought to face the east to pray for. As you know, Scripture has said, give praise to God who ascends above the highest heavens to the east. Now, of the deacons, one always stands by the Eucharistic oblations and the other stands outside the door watching those who enter. And afterwards, when you offer, let them together minister in the church. And if there is one to be found who is not sitting in his place, let the deacon who is within rebuke him and make him rise and sit in his fitting place. Also, in the church, the young ones ought to sit separately if there is a place. If not, let them stand. Those of more advantage age should sit separately. The boys should sit separately on their fathers and the mothers should take them 
and stand and let the young girls sit separately. If there is really not a place, let them stand behind the women. Let the young who are married and have little children stand separately. The older women and widows should sit separately. So as you can see, again, still very Jewish custom, customary base you know, to separate the men and women. And the deacon should see that each one who enters gets to his place and that none of these sit in an inappropriate place. Likewise, the deacon ought to see that there are none who whisper or sleep or laugh or nod off. I think we need some of those guys in the Catholic Church today. I think a lot of people sleep, nod off or laugh at uh, things that may go wrong uh, during the services or during the masses. For in the church it is necessary to have discipline, sober vigilance, and attentive ear to the word of the Lord. Now that's true, and we should be doing that today as well. So that's probably why we need some guys to be sitting in the church and making sure that uh, the people, the congregation, myself included, are not falling asleep. But sometimes I think our priests are pretty good at putting people to sleep. But all that being said, it's kind of bringing the, the church back to the house. But it's very different nowadays. I think now the central focus of Mass at Home is either looking at your iPhone or your iPad or where, however you're streaming Mass to your house and, uh, and following Mass that way. It's very interesting, very different at the moment. But it's amazing how quickly the church moved and digitized. So, yeah, I think something to look forward to and how Mass is going to progress over the next couple of uh, months. We had a meeting again with our exec, uh, partial council exec the other day, and we spoke about what is Mass at home, what's it going to look like, how it's going to be over the next couple of months, maybe even the next year or two. It's quite frightening how long this might go on. So thanks for joining me for Coffee and a Catholic Chat, and stay happy, healthy, and holy. Join me on the podcast. Your stories and opinions will help others with their Catholic journey. Visit our website at www.catholiccoffeepodcast forward slash join us and send me a request to be on the podcast. I believe that your message will inspire Catholics around the globe that have similar concerns and stories to yours. Share your experiences, inspire and motivate others to embrace the Catholic life and let's build a community of believers that share the richness of the Catholic faith. Join me for an inspired, enjoyable Catholic discussion over a cup of coffee. Fill in the form and I will contact you to book a time to be on the podcast. Please remember to share the Catholic Coffee Podcast with everyone you know.